This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I'm Nil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. In this episode, I speak with Alison Rabschnuck, who leads the Good Food Institute's Corporate Engagement Department and advises some of the world's largest food companies, restaurants, and retailers on business opportunities in the rapidly evolving fields of plant-based and cultivated meat, eggs, and dairy. If you are not familiar with the Good Food Institute, or GFI, they are a nonprofit think tank that is accelerating the shift to a sustainable, healthy, and just food system. I highly recommend listening to episode number 61 and episode number three of this podcast, where I chat with Bruce Friedrich, the executive director of GFI, for more background and context around the organization. In this conversation, we talk about Allison's background, her team's work at GFI, and why the organization focuses on encouraging and facilitating innovation and connections across the food industry. We not only discuss the work GFI does, but also how entrepreneurs and other food industry professionals and leaders can engage with the organization to accelerate their current efforts and develop game-changing sustainable foods. We also get into what the downstream implications are for the industry as not only startups, but also big food companies start to invest and innovate in the plant-based and cultivated meat space, and the role GFI plans to play in this growth and evolution of the food industry. Lastly, we get into what's next for Allison's corporate engagement team and GFI in general. If you work in the plant-based or cultivated meat space, or are passionate about the efforts to transform our food system using innovative new technologies like plant proteins, cell-based foods, and fermentation, this episode is packed with really great information. I hope you enjoy it. Alison Rapschnuck from GFI, thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. I am thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Alison, so tell me about your uh, digital marketing background. I saw that you had a career in that space, which I found super interesting because I spent uh, more than a decade plus working on digital advertising and online ad networks, and I'm intimately familiar with the complexities, challenges, and fun and exciting world that that is. I think most people who know about GFI wouldn't think uh, that's your background, but that's I, I found that really intriguing. I'd love to learn more about it. Yeah, definitely a bit of an untraditional background and, and path. Uh, so, you know, right after college, I went into advertising and worked at a few ad firms and actually sold advertising space for a, a print magazine, worked at a few large companies from the brand side. And in the late 90s, yes, I'm aging myself, um, basically found myself working for a dot-com. This was during the dot-com boom. And there was this new form of marketing called um, affiliate marketing. And I quickly realized after being in that job for over a year that there was a, a big opportunity. And I started my own business as a result. So I ran my own business for about 18 years 
and specialized at first in affiliate networks and then that morphed into ad networks and it was a a great career um you know since then it's been i think a little bit harder to to run uh, an individual ad network since a lot of the big companies mm-hmm. like facebook and google have kind of taken over um but it was it was a fantastic career and um yeah it it believe it or not led me to gfi yeah, I mean, for people who don't know what ad networks are, I won't bore them with the technicalities, but uh, <laughs> I uh, I watched that industry sort of grow and evolve. I ended up working for a startup which invented the ad exchange, which was basically a network of networks, um, and they got acquired by Yahoo and ended up at Yahoo. And and then you had platforms, as you, as you rightfully pointed out, like Facebook and others that, that have come about and have basically consolidated a lot of... Um, online advertising spend, which has made the industry sort of tricky and, and mm-hmm. interesting. So that's fascinating. So wh- how did GFI <laughs> come into your, um, your purview? Like, how did you, how did you even learn about GFI and, and what led you to this, this role? Yeah. You know, I've, I've always been passionate about issues surrounding animal rights. I became a vegetarian, uh, when I was about 21 years old and, Never, it never occurred to me that I actually could meld my career with my kind of personal passion. Um, and, you know, I think, I think even then, I mean, if I were to think back, it's like, you know, what job could I have had uh, that was similar to what I'm doing now at GFI? And I think the answer is nothing. Like, I, I don't know that it actually would have existed. So, you know, I went about my life and had a, a good corporate career. Uh, I worked for some great people and on some great brands. But it was never my true passion. And I really was seeking, you know, that passion for a long time during my career, never knowing if I would ever actually find it. And during that time, you know, I was pretty passionate about uh, my eating habits and, you know, tried to share them with as many people as I could and um, read a lot of books, supported financially a lot of organizations And it really wasn't until 2016, um, during the last election, when the Yes on Three campaign was being proposed here in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, the bill uh, that was um, co-supported by the HSUS and uh, basically mandated more, more room for farm animals. And it was during the campaigning process, which I volunteered to do, that it kind of reawoke in me this this passion um, and and this kind of anger about how farm animals are actually kept and raised. And so during that time, I started to read more and I started to you know look for ways I could get involved. And to make a long story short, I actually took on a, a short term internship with HSUS. Uh, it was all online. And I think it was around that time that as, as, you know, I was just reading more and learning more, I came across the Good Food Institute. Mm. And at that point, I think there were only about 10 employees. It was still a fairly new nonprofit. And on the jobs page, uh, there were two jobs uh, that were listed, and one of which was director of corporate engagement. And I read the job description, and literally, I almost jumped out of my seat because it was the most perfect job. Like I, I literally could not imagine a more perfect job that both blended my career experience and my passion um, for basically helping to transform the food system. So it was uh, it was a beautiful day. And, you know, I applied and it took four months, <laughs> which is actually wow. short for, uh, for 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 the time frame for a lot of GFI jobs. But it's it's been a dream come true. And so you started at GFI in 2017, is that? That's right. Yep. March 2017. Wow, so 2017, so that's fairly recently. And so when you and but I didn't really, I forget how quickly GFI has grown into this this massive impactful organization that it is. Um, I remember, I think I probably mentioned this before on the podcast, sitting down with Bruce when he was uh, first thinking about this and and talking to people about this. And uh, who would have thought within a short amount of time this this whole space would have also changed so much, and GFI would end up playing such a central role in this. Uh, new transformation that's starting to happen in the food system. So, but back in 2017, which is only two years ago, uh, maybe two and a half years ago now, uh, what was GFI thinking and planning and what was this sort of job description that seemed so exciting that you wanted to get involved? Yeah, I don't remember the exact job <laughs> description, but it was a, but it was essentially, you know, help make alternative proteins 
um, you know, tastier and more affordable and widely available by working with food manufacturers, working with grocery stores, uh, working with restaurants. So when I started, I was the only person in corporate engagement. Um, now we have a team of about a dozen people. And one of my first projects was to actually work within the restaurant industry. And it really did seem like a monumental task. So it was basically what we did is we developed a scorecard. And we have actually just finished the third iteration of this. It's called mm -hmm. the Good Food Scorecard. And it ranks the top 100 restaurant chains on, you know, whether they have a single plant-based entree and if they do, how they're marketing it, you know, whether they're sticking it into a vegetarian section of the menu or, or whether it's marketed uh, more widely. And, you know, when we came out with the very first ranking and I actually had an intern help pull, you know, all the menus, both online and in person from a hundred restaurants. So it was really just two of us kind of working on this. Um, the very first year, I think we had 45 of the top 100 had any kind of score at all. So, you know, it showed a large opportunity. And I remember when we emailed it out, we emailed it to, I think it was around 400 executives. So like the top four executives at, at those top 100 restaurants. And we heard very little back. I mean, literally it was radio silence. And I remember thinking like, this is going to be a difficult job. You know, it's, it's going to be a lot of cold calling. It's going to be a lot of doors slammed in our face. Um, and how wrong was I? I mean, it, it literally, I, I would say it took about, you know, six months to a year before it really just took off. And those initial efforts were rewarded, um, you know, and just this, this kind of momentum started that, you know, instead of us having to reach out to corporations, they were now coming to us. You know, they were looking to us as the experts. And that's kind of how it's now been, you know, for about two years um, where it's it's been really difficult to keep up with the the demand, um, but it's impossible to say no to any of their requests that we get because the companies we're meeting with are just you know they have the potential to make so much impact uh, in the growth of these alternative proteins. Yeah, so it seems like food service was the initial focus, and starting with restaurants, of course, and hospitality. How? Uh... Uh, obviously, things have changed drastically. We, yeah. If anyone's been paying attention to the news, we know we know that this we're living in a very different world now in 2019. We still have a long way to go, and I and I want to give some context around why I think we have a long way to go. And Allison, you know this really well: is that while a lot of the statistics and research and re reports you end up uh, finding online talk about how people are choosing to eat more plant-based and are trying to eat less meat. The fact of the matter is that meat consumption is still going up in the U.S. So, how? So that to me just gives us even more urgency to keep fighting this good fight. And that even though on the surface, if you read the news, it seems like well, if Burger King now has the Impossible Burger, and if Beyond Meat is literally everywhere, um, then it must mean that people are actually consuming less meat. But the reality is a little different. So I, I want to talk about that a little bit. And then, of course, let's dive deeper into what you've now done on retail and a few other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, in some ways, I think we live in a little bit of a vacuum because, you know, we get Google alerts for, for <laughs> you know, any, any word that includes plant-based meat or alternative proteins. So it does seem like, you know, the world is changing quicker than it actually is. Um, and I think we, you know, the way we remember this is we, we actually pull retail sales data. Um, it used to be through Nielsen and now it's through spins. Uh, and while the industry has seen a lot of growth, so plant-based foods, as, as we kind of characterize them, which is basically any products that are alternatives to animal products, um, you know, the whole industry saw a growth of 11% year over year and 31% growth over the last two years. Um, that being said, plant-based meat still only makes up about one to two percent of retail sales. One to two percent, right? So we're, we're talking a real small fraction. Um, and on the food service side, yes, you know it's exciting. Dunkin' Donuts just you know launched that they're now rolling out to nine thousand locations with their breakfast sausage, um, and we have Burger King, of course, and many others coming on board. Uh, but that's it. Still, is the tip of the iceberg. Um, but we we do believe that this momentum is going to continue. And while it's a small base to begin with, uh, it becomes a bigger base every year. So it, it's it's pretty exciting stuff. Um, 
Um, and we also think that, you know, there are a lot of other opportunities. Right now, all of the discussion is primarily around plant-based. Um, but as an organization, we focus on two other kinds of alternative proteins, uh, one of which is cultivated meat, which is obviously not in market yet and still needs, um, you know, to scale up. And there are significant challenges, no doubt, in order to do that. But that poses a real big opportunity for the future, as well as this this category that we're kind of lumping into what's called fermentation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these these are products like corn. So mycoprotein. Um, these are also ingredients. Um, it's it's what companies you know are doing right now with with recombinant proteins. So. You know, we're not putting um, all our hopes just on one category. I think between the three of those kinds of alternative proteins, um, they have the potential to really change and upend the whole meat industry. Yeah, and when you say um, uh, alternative proteins, is GFI mostly or only focused on the meats, or do you still have a focus on uh, plant-based dairy and cheese and um, and, you know, when you think of plant-based, it could it could mean many things. Uh, a snack sure. company with an avocado dip <laughs> is also plant-based. So it's yeah, ab absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I would say so. We we do focus primarily on meat, um, mm -hmm. really as the and the, the reason we do that is just looking at the environmental degradation that occurs. Um, you know, looking at climate change and and all the many other ills, antibiotic resistance. Um, you know, human health problems. We do, of course, support um, plant-based dairy, plant-based eggs as, as other industries. Um, so we do work pretty closely with companies in, in that whole space. And, and really, and as you pointed out, I mean, plant-based, you know, could mean chickpeas and kale. Uh, the way we define them is, is as I mentioned before, it, they are products that replace animal products. So it would be a plant-based cheese. It would be a plant-based sour cream. Um, you know, it would not be a can of, of chickpeas or a bag of quinoa. That makes sense. So it's it has to be sort of a one-to-one -one replacement. Um, Correct. That is sort of, uh, yeah, that, that down the line will, will minimize the use of animal-based foods in the food system. So I guess that, that definitely clarifies the focus. And obviously, you've been at it now for two years. Beyond food service, have you also done work with retail? You did mention some of the research you've done with SPINs. And you're right, all the research points to plant-based meats, dairy, uh, yogurts, ice creams, all outpacing traditional grocery sales. Animal-based versions are either flatlining or declining in sales, uh, at least when you look at retail data. But the plant-based versions are all rising. Tell me more about what GFI directly does on the retail side of things, and then I'd like to better understand how you engage with retailers and also kind of how you play this bridge between these emerging companies that are obviously looking for more shelf space and help with merchandising. Uh, what, where does GFI sort of fit in in the middle of all of this? Yeah. So, you know, it really started off with one of our, our key roles with manufacturers, retailers and restaurants was to inspire them. Right. So it was almost to come in and be cheerleaders of the the change you know, that's happening with consumers switching to more of these plant based foods. Uh, and we're now finding that we don't need to do that as much. You know, most of these companies um, mm -hmm obviously are seeing for themselves that this is not just a short-term blip, but, you know, this is a, a longer-term shift that is occurring. So a lot of what we do is, is help these companies understand the business opportunity for them. So if they're a food manufacturer, you know, what's the white space? Uh, obviously, we have a lot of plant-based burgers on the market now. You know, what, what else, like what, what products um, haven't really been developed yet? Um, what, are the, what are the opportunities potentially in ingredients, in the way they're manufactured, the way they're marketed? And the way we work with uh, retailers is to, again, kind of help sh show them, first of all, the wide array of products that are out there. Um, some of the retailers do have pretty good assortments. Like I have a Wegmans that's near me that has an enormous plant-based meat line and, you know, great pl plant-based dairy, but not all retailers 
have that level of assortment. So we're trying to help them understand all of the many products that are out there and also help them differentiate from other retailers um, by introducing them to some of the smaller brands or, or maybe you know niche brands. Um, what's really important, though, is is to help them understand how to merchandise these products in a different way. So we always look at plant-based milk as a as a case study for where we think plant-based meat is is going. And you know, really, when you think about how milk, plant-based milk, is now merchandised, it's adjacent to dairy milk. Right. And that when that switch happened, you know, when when plant based milk moved from the the dusty um, shelf stable box into the the milk carton next to dairy milk, that's when sales really took off. And, you know, we're seeing that with some of these other categories. So Beyond Meat was one of the first companies to uh, basically work their way into the meat counter. And as soon as they did that, uh, sales went through the roof. And the reason being that it's not just reliant on vegans and vegetarians as the consumer group anymore, right? It's now opened it up to this much mm -hmm. wider market, whether you call them flexitarians, omnivores, whatever. Um, it's not the smaller group of vegans and vegetarians. So, you know, you look at data from Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, um, you know, D Beyond Meat says that 93% of, of shoppers in a grocery store setting also have animal meat in their basket. So that kind of points to the fact that, you know, this is a much wider uh, audience. And that is why, you know, I think many people are very bullish on the potential sales of, of this industry uh, because it's now opened up to everyone, right? Everyone's a potential consumer for mm -hmm. these products. So I think um, what's really exciting, I think what's really led to this massive increase has been the innovation. And that's something that GFI really focuses on. And I think that's what distinguishes us from other organizations is um, that's what we want to help companies do is innovate, continue to innovate to make products that are as tasty as possible. Um, you know, a lot of people say like, well, wh why, why are all these companies focused on mimicking meat? Is that really what consumers want? And when we look at the data, the sales data, and we look at the velocity of products and we look at which ones are really moving off the shelf quicker than others, it is those products that are mimicking meat. There is still absolutely a place uh, for you know consumers who are not looking for products that mimic meat, right? That are looking for uh, the more traditional mm -hmm. veggie burgers that are made of grains or you can see the piece of corn or the pea or whatever. Um, there is absolutely mm -hmm. still a market for that. But what we're seeing, I think, with the more um, omnivore and flexitarian consumers, they are right now gravitating towards those products that are mimicking animal products. They're looking for that familiarity. Um, so that's what we help companies do is, is innovate and understand, um, you know, what, um, what resources are available to them to help them get there. Yeah, so you almost are sort of... Um... You know, I've always, I've, I guess I asked this uh, when last time Bruce was on the podcast too, we had, I think we talked about this a little bit, but I think um, GFI is almost starting to play the role of, uh, as you said in the beginning, you were just sort of cheerleading the industry, but as it starts to mature and as the day-to-day -day problems and challenges of new companies launching in the space start to change, you almost have to evolve your role in the process. So you almost function as sort of a agnostic third-party advisor. Mm -hmm. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong in categorizing it this way, but the way I think of it is that you have you you have this massive food system which we need to change. Uh, Plant-based is obviously a trend that's um, that's caught people's attention, and people are interested in in plant-based foods, which is now leading to companies to innovate and supply better products and and uh, and find ways to get them into the places where people consume food or buy food. So it's grocery stores or it's uh, restaurant chains and, and elsewhere. Now, uh, GFI is sort of helping companies from the get-go to help to innovate, but also then bridging the gap between that um, early stage of a company where all they need is to identify the right white space and develop a great product, um, market it the right way, and then bring it to eventually the retailers or the food service providers, and you bridge that gap between those two constituents in some ways. Uh, until, of course, and this is the part I'm interested in learning, 
is until, of course, the company has gotten the training wheels off, uh, where they have their own, you know, massive sales force. For example, Beyond Meat at this point probably, um, I, I wouldn't say doesn't need GFI's help, but I would say they they kind of are are out on their own doing it without yeah. any external assistance at this point. Yeah, I think everything you said is is accurate. You know, I think really what we're focused on now is is the 360 degree view of the whole food system. So, you know, we're we're not just focused on one thing. What what we're finding is um and and yes, you know, some companies like Beyond Meat, you know, they're often often running and you know, maybe they come to us with certain questions, but, you know, they have the the expertise. Um, but we do work with a lot of multinational food companies and meat companies um, that you would think might have their own resources. Um, but they a lot of them just they don't have the insight into this industry since it is still so new. So we do work under NDA with most of the the large food companies and uh, many of the meat companies to help them understand, you know, where to take this and and how to differentiate from some of the products that are out there. Um, but you know, even more importantly, we need to step back and say, even before somebody comes up with an idea for a product, uh, let's talk about ingredients, right? So right now, many of the the plant-based products are using protein that comes from soy and from wheat. You know, those are are crops that were made for animal feed originally, and you know they're fairly inexpensive. Um, but they haven't been optimized for the use of plant-based meat. So it's it's starting to work with some of the suppliers and helping them understand that there's a huge, huge industry, right, that is still fairly nascent, um, but it represents a big opportunity for them. Uh, a lot of companies are looking towards things like pea protein, which which is harder to find. It tends to be more expensive. So, you know, as an organization, how can we help uh, a lot of the suppliers kind of connect with the manufacturers so that there is supply of these proteins when they need them. It's also looking at manufacturing methods. So many of these products are made via extrusion, which is you know a great way to make these products, but it also requires a million dollar plus machine in order to do so, which is you know more cost prohibitive for some of the the startups out there. So what other techniques, technological you know methods are there to make some of these products? Um, so we you know try to work with researchers to identify those and and get people to really focus on these problems. So you know as a nonprofit, we we are absolutely working to kind of stir the pot and get a lot of people connected, get a lot of people focused on solving some of the critical problems, um, you know, that the industry of alternative proteins, and again, that includes cultivated meat and fermentation, um, some of those problems that could potentially hamper the growth of this industry. So that's very much what we're also focused on. Yeah, it's such a unique nonprofit in that sense because you are almost the invisible hand <laughs> trying to trying to connect all the little. Um, you know, I often use the analogy of a of a puzzle yeah. uh, with uh, with a new food system and how we're trying to piece together a better one. You can't just you know focus on one issue. You've got to see how everything links up together. And what you just described is exactly yep. that is is how do you solve some of these supply chain constraints? Because there's no point if, if a company innovates using this miraculous new protein, but they don't have it. There's no commodity market for that protein, and there's no ingredient supplier who's focused on it. Your, your, that, that, pro, that protein will only be in your kitchen and nowhere else. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you've got to think about scale from the get-go, cost, sustainability, um, and, and obviously a few other aspects of how that can actually um, become impactful in the long run. So you start thinking about the supply chain, then you start thinking about manufacturing. Uh, distribution is really just the final leg. And I think um, at, at this point, it, it, I guess I get, it, I get the picture is that, and I've, I've thought about GFI like this in, in some ways, is that GFI could almost be a, a, a large consulting mm -hmm. firm um, and I know that because I used to work for a large consulting firm that is providing insights, providing uh, expertise and learnings uh, across the industry. So even if, as you said, even if the training wheels are off and someone's and a company like you know Beyond Meat has gone public and obviously has the expertise and the resources now to do things on their own, there's still some sort of value in trying to understand where 
the market is headed and what you what intelligence that you've gathered along the way uh, that could be beneficial to to them. But GFI is not a sort of a membership based company. So how do how do how do companies or startups or ingredient manufacturers uh, even work with you? It's just that you've you've made you I guess you've done enough outreach where people know what GFI is doing and get in touch with GFI, but what's the best way that they can engage or do engage? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So you're correct. We're not a trade association. We don't take money. We don't, we don't have a membership. Um, really we provide free consulting and I know that kind of sounds crazy. Um, (laughs) but you know, the, the reason we do that is, is because of our mission impact, um, you know, goal where we we're hoping to affect as much change as possible. and, And we feel as of today that the way to do that is to provide, uh, no cost consulting. So, you know, we'll oftentimes go into companies for an all day session where we brief them on everything from the state of the landscape to the technological methods of production and challenges to the regulatory uh, overview, et cetera. Um, So really, you know, people reach out to us. um, They may see one of us speak at a conference. um, They may have been to our our conference. So we actually just put on our second Good Food Conference in September in San Francisco, had about a thousand attendees. You know, it draws a lot of people from big corporations and startups and scientists, investors. So a lot of people have have heard of us through that uh, way. We also have a great website, gfi.org. Um, we actually just did a little relaunch. So now you can see actually more resources uh, by audience. So if you're a food manufacturer, you can go and see the different resources that are available. We do put out a lot of white paper type products. So um, we'll be putting out our second annual state of the industry reports. That'll be in probably February this year. And, you know, that's, it's a pretty comprehensive document um, for manufacturers, investors, other people that gives them a sense of, you know, over the last year, what's happened with the industry as, as far as maybe acquisitions, uh, new companies on the landscape will include our retail sales data, et cetera. Um, our science and technology group also puts out a lot of white papers. Um, there's one all about the opportunity in seafood, for example, um, as mm-hmm. well as, you know, again, kind of mind maps, looking at the industries and and what the the areas of opportunity are. So, but yeah, people can can reach out to me directly if if they're interested in in working with GFI. Be happy to answer those emails. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you said it right. Free consultancy—that's <laughs> what it is. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, some people have asked me, people who are not uh, familiar with the food industry, who I know from my previous career in, in media and technology, um, if GFI was a as a think tank, is it a yeah. lobbying group? Is it a and um, and I guess I guess what, what I've, I've I think I'm glad I've I've described it the right way. I, I've usually basically said that it's it's. Um, it's the organization you go for for insights and connections, and they'll make it happen, uh, and they won't charge <laughs> you for it. So, because they're purely driven by the mission, and and I've actually had some people tell me, wait, what? Why? 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 Why wouldn't they want to make money from this? And so I think that makes it a it's a very interesting, unique organization in that way, which which I'm sure makes your your job pretty fascinating. The fact that you said you said you have a do- dozen people now on your team. Yes, yeah, it's a fantastic team. So. Um, we have one person, Caroline, who is working with a lot of the retailers as well as many other projects. We have Zach, who is primarily working with food service, um, along with, I mean, we all wear a million hats, so, but, but that's their primary Mm -hmm. focus. We have a consumer research scientist, um, and we're actually hiring another one. We have business analysts. So we, we have, we have a lot going on. Um, we also have two business analysts who are primarily supporting investors and startups. So really the way we look at it is corporate engagement, you know, is the department that handles anyone from a person who just has an idea for a business all the way on up to the multinational food companies, retailers, and restaurants. Um, so we're providing services to really help all of them. Exciting stuff. And so how do you sort of measure your success? Because again, um, it, it this is one of the challenges in, in the nonprofit world is, of course, you 
Um, you want to help change the industry. You want to advocate for better products. You want to reform the food system. But um, measurement when it comes to some of this stuff really gets tricky unless you have specific campaigns that have uh, that have resulted in a passage of a new law uh, or some sort of uh, actual change. How do you and your teams kind of you know measure your performance? How's that? How's that? been over the past two years and is that still an evolving process oh it's absolutely an evolving process and, and it's and it's honestly it is a challenge at times um and it really I, I think we have different ways of measuring different things so for example if we give a webinar which which we've done now a few times and we'll plan on doing more of them um you know some of the the metrics will just be on how many people signed up how many people actually downloaded mm -hmm. you know a, a document um, we have a newsletter that goes out to manufacturers in the plant-based industry called the Plant-Based Insider. And we measure open rates and click-through rates. Um, but, you know, understanding really what would be, I think, the gold standard is, is, you know, did we actually influence the creation of a new product line? You know, did, did we influence a company to remove, um, you know, animal products from their supply chain? So I do think, you know, one, one example, um, which they nicely shared with us is Morningstar Farms, um, who mm -hmm. has told us that our engagement with them has led to the removal of all egg from their Morningstar product line by 2021, which ultimately um, removes 300 million eggs annually from their supply chain. So when we hear stories like that, you know, it, that's, that's, that's what keeps us going. Um, <laughs> that to us is, is a great measure of success of the work we're doing. Um, again, we don't always, you know, hear stories like that. And we do encourage companies to share when they can, you know, how we have influenced um, there have been, you know, we, we did meet with a meat company, um, who then did launch a plant-based line and indicated, you know, that we were part of the, the reason for that, how much credit we can take, you know, I don't know. And I wouldn't <laughs> claim to, you know, take full credit for that. Um, so it is, it is probably, you know, I think it is a bit challenging sometimes, uh, on the attribution front. Um, but you know, some, some of what we also, I think measure success by is just the, the access that we get to certain decision makers, uh, who we know have the capacity and, you know, power to, to really enact change. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, is obviously a challenging, uh, that I knew that was going to be a challenging question because of the nature of the work that you do. Uh, but it's amazing that you at least have a couple of sure. stories that you know for sure that you can point to, which makes sort of all the work uh, worth it, I'm Absolutely. sure. Um, so as you were talking about the fact that you work with uh, a lot of big food companies, but at the same time, you're working with startups. Uh, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately, I don't know why I sit and wonder about these things, but I look at I look at the market and... Um, it's all very exciting, right? You have amazing new startups launching, getting a lot of funding early on. There seems to be a, a big rush for seed funding right now for companies that have something innovative that they are offering, especially in the alternative protein space. And on the other hand, another trend, obviously, is that the big meat and big food companies are all getting into the game. So it seems to be that it's 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 growing on all fronts. Sometimes I wonder, and I guess this is the point I wanted to get your insights on, is that what are the sort of challenges or the risks in some of this happening in the sense that do you think that big meat companies or big food companies getting into the game, launching their own product lines, does it in some ways slow down uh, the progress that, say, a tiny startup with uh, a few million in seed funding that still doesn't know how to manufacture their products uh, face? Or do you see that in the natural evolution of how markets evolve, some of those companies, if they play their cards right, could become acquisition targets? I, I guess I'm just asking a broad question about how you see this evolving and, and if it all is leading to something positive um, and maybe there's ways to measure that, like in the case of Morningstar Farms is, well, as long as the most amount of animals are being taken out of the food system, you are succeeding and it doesn't matter who succeeds. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to answer the question for mm -hmm. you, but that's what my head was going yeah, for. Yeah, no, that, that's it's a very good question, a thoughtful one. Um, you know, I think the way we look at it is that we need all 
all of the players, you know, to be working towards this. So I think, and I think that's why we, we provide support to anyone from just, you know, somebody having an idea all the way on up to the big food companies. You know, I'll, I'll say this, that, you know, when we see the, the massive success of companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, it's because they were able to be nimble because they were startups, right? And they didn't have to turn a profit right away. They were able to take their time and put a lot of money into R&D, which has ultimately led to ultimate led to their products, you know, which are innovative um, and they are, you know, really, they've kind of upended the whole uh, game and upended the category of plant-based meat. Um, big food companies, on the other hand, you know, have to show profits. Um, they typically don't have as much R&D uh, money to put into the development of the product. However, what they do have is the current infrastructure, right? They have the manufacturing capacity, typically. Um, mm-hmm. They have the deep relationships already and, and great product placement in grocery stores. Um, they oftentimes have relationships with major food service chains. So, you know, I think it's important for innovation um, ha- to happen with both the startups as well as the large food companies. And as you mentioned, in some cases, it could very well be that these the smaller companies are acquired by the larger ones um, because they're not able to, you know, really innovate on their own. So no matter how it happens, we're just happy that it happens. <laughs> and um, yeah. You know, we've are, we have seen a lot of acquisitions. We've seen a lot of investments. We've seen big food companies come up with come out with their own product lines. Um, you know, I think there's enough room in this space. You know, for for companies of all sizes and of all kinds. Um, there's also, I think, room in this market for a lot of new products that aren't out there yet. You know, we look at plant-based chicken as a category. We look at plant-based seafood. You know, these are categories that are still, um, you know, quite, quite unfettered, I would say, compared to the mm-hmm. burger category, for example. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, we, we absolutely provide support to companies of all sizes because we don't have a crystal ball. It's hard to, to know who will be the winners and who will be the losers. Um, so we think it's important to support them all. Yeah. And I think it also sort of explains why you need to, uh, you need to be this open source intelligence consulting, uh, platform and network of sorts, because if you didn't, then they would, you would have issues of conflict, which I'm still sure probably do come up. Um, but it, it, obviously, you don't have a financial incentive in advising, say, Nestle to launch a new burger versus um, some smart scientist from coming out with something that's going to be the next best plant-based Right. Burger. So, you know, all of the information and all of the research that we enable is is open access. And that's something that, you know, we're very clear about. So like actually right now we have a, a research fund where it's $3 million uh, of donor money that is funding 16 different research projects around the globe, either focused on cultivated or plant-based meat. Um, and we'll be doing the same thing again this year. And, you know, it's with the understanding that this research is available to everybody. So all of the all of the resources that we put out, the state of the industry reports, the spins data is available to everyone. Um, when we do have meetings, you know, that are under NDA behind closed doors, we're, we're not giving giving any of these companies anything that we're not giving other companies. But of course, you know, they're sharing with us of their objectives and their potential product lines is is kept confidential. Right, so you're some you're you're kind of like the gatekeepers of uh, of everyone's secret plans, <laughs> uh, and so sort of the trusted uh, gatekeepers of the food of this new food uh, economy, sure. really. So you did touch on this a little bit about um, some of the categories that definitely need a lot more attention and and focus. Yes, you know burgers are all the rage at the moment, mm-hmm. so uh, that's great because you had to have one category to lead in, which better one than than which is more American than a burger. So that makes sense because it's starting out over here. But uh, you you said chicken and for example seafood. Uh, the reason I asked that is I. For an entrepreneur or someone who's a wannabe entrepreneur who's listening, and, and trust me, there are many of them listening, uh, they probably want to try to figure out where the opportunities are and who better to learn about that from but Allison, right? So in your opinion, what, where do you think that there's, there's, 
the market is really demanding for more options or consumers are asking for more options or you or GFI believes there need to be uh, a lot more innovation and research and uh, efforts put into that currently are maybe getting ignored? Yeah. So what what I would suggest is for any entrepreneur listening to come to our website, gfi.org. And we do have a form that entrepreneurs can fill out to basically get access to our community, which includes a really great, robust group called GF Ideas, which is basically it's a it's kind of I think we have a Slack channel and we have a monthly phone call where uh, entrepreneurs can chat with each other. They potentially find other co-founders this way. And we have a lot of speakers and make available a lot of resources, including our startup guide. So, but, you know, to answer your question, we, we did produce a commercialization opportunities document that is now a bit outdated, but we're in the process of updating it and it should be released at some time in 2020. Um, you know, but I think just from a very top level, you know, some of the opportunities involve uh, really solving some of the texture and taste challenges of plant-based meat. So it's trying to, you know, identify um, ways that we can create better plant-based fat, right? So, you know, some of the, the, the products that are out there sometimes get dinged for being too dry, for example, or too crumbly. So there is still a lot of innovation that needs to happen, not just with a, you know, kind of product, like a, a new plant-based sausage, but really, you know, the, the kind of building blocks of a lot of these products. Um, and that's something that our, our business analysts, you know, would be happy to speak with any future entrepreneur and point them in the right direction. Um, but, you know, I think we have a lot of our spins data online. So you can look at gfi.org slash market research. And I think it will give you a good sense of, you know, which categories are growing, um, which product categories don't have too many SKUs in them. You know, I think one thing for me is looking at plant-based pork. So we do have, you know, some sausage SKUs on the market. Um, we probably need better plant-based bacon. You know, I think that's the, that's the holy grail for a lot of vegans <laughs> and vegetarians, right, is, is finding a plant-based bacon that really performs uh, like its animal counterpart. Um, ground pork as well. And I mentioned seafood before, you know, we, we do absolutely see that as a, as a huge white space. Um, obviously, we have we're at critical um, points with a lot of our ocean issues. And, you know, there are some great products out there now, like Good Catch Tuna and Gardein Fishless Filets. Um, but I think, you know, there could be a lot more, a lot more skews on the on the shelf. I 100% agree with that. There's a lot more opportunities there that people are not focused on. And I think everyone's chasing the, trying to jump on the existing bandwagons and not actually seeing that they may be a little late to some of those games. And that doesn't mean they shouldn't focus on the space. They just have to get a little creative. So I, I really appreciate that. And I think um, I think it's definitely a good resource for any entrepreneur to check out and participate in. So we're closing in on sort of 2020 now. What is, um, I know you're just, two, say, a little over two years into this role. Uh, and obviously things have changed and evolved and grown really fast at GFI. Looking into... 2020, I'm sure you've you've had planning and strategy meetings. What are some of your big priorities for, for your team? And then if you can speak to overall what GFI is going to be focused on. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say from my team perspective, it's it's to, you know, continue to support the many companies who are looking for consulting. Um, we definitely will be doing a push with retail this year. So, um, really, you know, working to understand what gaps still exist with some of the large retail brands in the U.S. Um, we have a document that our consumer research scientist and a few others have put together that has identified over 100 questions that we feel still need to be answered in order to uh, move the industry forward. You know, it could be things like, you know, how, how does a, a shopper actually shop for plant-based? Um, you know, how, how are they actually shopping in a grocery store? Are they looking for just protein? Are they looking for a certain kind of protein? Um, we want to understand better some of the questions around how to menu products in restaurants. 
So, you know, is vegan really the the dirty word that we think it really is and has shown in other forms of research? Um, or is that changing? Is it does it does it kind of depend on the the demographic of the consumer? Um you know, or should, again, should it be avoided altogether? So we have a long list. Um, I'd encourage any researchers who are listening to also reach out to us because we're not going to be able to do all of this ourselves. Um, so we'd be looking for others. Uh, one of the other big projects is to do a big survey of many of the companies with whom we already are working um, to understand, and this is both startups as, as well as, you know, big food meat companies, to understand um, maybe what services we're not providing. So, you know, I think as you alluded to before, it's like there, there's an, an evolution that needs to happen. You know, so we've we've already kind of changed what our offerings are since I first started. Um, and as the industry gets more advanced, you know, those needs are going to change. And we want to make sure that we're providing the services that these companies need. Um, so that will be a big undertaking as well. And I think from, you know, from a GFI-wide perspective, um, we do a lot of planning internally, both on a quarterly basis as well as kind of looking out, you know, three to five years. Um, you know, I think we, we, we like to identify what the big challenges are to the, to the industry of alternative proteins. So, again, you know, this wouldn't be just plant-based, um, where I think one of the big challenges is on uh, co-manufacturing. So, when we look at some of the companies who are trying to scale up, you know, what's what's really limiting them is is the amount of line time available in order to produce these products. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, an initiative that we're working on, uh, basically trying to um, get other companies who may not be involved in this space, but have the manufacturing capacity to to join in. So, you know, show them that this is a phenomenal business opportunity. Um and then on the, you know, the cultivated side, continue to help address some of the scale up challenges, um, the cost of the, you know, cell culture media, trying to bring more life science companies on board, working with some of the, the large manufacturing companies, you know, to provide the, the large bioreactors that are needed, um, as well as some of the other technology that will be crucial. Um, we're also really you know, interested to work more closely on the, the third category of alternative proteins that I mentioned before, which is fermentation. So mm -hmm. that poses, I think, a lot of great opportunity. Some of the, the, the companies making products this way you know, are, are making really sustainable uh, protein. And we think that there's a lot of opportunity. I think one of the challenges there is in the nomenclature. So it's it's how do we help companies, you know, from a kind of a B2B to C perspective, um, understand how best to market these ingredients and products to consumers so that they're not scared off by something that sounds too lab-like or science-y. Um, you know, with fermentation, like this is a process that that humans have been using for thousands of years to make beer and bread. Um, so it's it's trying to kind of communicate that to consumers that this is actually very familiar to you. Um, you know, but this is a, this is, it is, it is a new, you know, kind of product category, but it's again, trying to root it in the familiar. So I think that will be an interesting project that we'd like to take on as well. Yeah, I think you're going to need the help of some um, behavioral scientists. For, for sure, <laughs> to, for sure. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you're probably going to hire some in your team soon. So maybe not your team, but generally at yeah. GFI. Um, because it seems like, because, uh, you know, when we talk about the food industry, I mean, so many things you mentioned that, that I, I find crucial and important at this point, especially the point about co-manufacturing. I talk to startups every week and, and they are all in some stage of, of headache because they can't figure out how to scale up their production and their manufacturing. And they are, they've had issues with their co-manufacturer. They're trying to bring it in house, but they don't have the funds to do that. And it's this never ending battle to uh, be able to actually start functioning like a food company that can supply nationally. And then obviously globally, because otherwise there's no way we can actually solve some of these problems we're currently facing with our food system. And, actually bring about the change uh, that we're all working to do. So that's interesting. And then, of course, you have the issue of uh, these new and emerging categories, like, um, and, and even the, the nomenclature you use for it. I know 
the cell-based meats thing has gone through a number of new names from clean meat to now cultivated meat. Uh, and it's it's still a few years away from actually having a product in the market. But I do think these issues need to be figured out, not just from a manufacturing, distribution, food industry standpoint, but we've got to keep another You've got to keep one eye on the consumer side, which is what is happening culturally, socially, how are consumer trends shifting as the demographics also shift as millennials and, well, now Gen Z are driving majority of food consumption trends. Does it change the fact that uh, maybe vegan's not the worst word? Um, I don't have, definitely have the answers to these yeah. questions, but these are important questions because I think a lot of these, you can't just make assumptions on these issues. You've got to be able to to really survey the marketplace and kind of almost understand how uh, society and culture is also evolving as we evolve what, uh, you know, what kind of food you get when you walk into a Burger King or a McDonald's. Absolutely. So it's all, it's all super fascinating stuff. I mean, and, and it's, it's changing fast and it's, uh, and it's, uh, and it's, it's all heading to hopefully a better future, but you kind of have a front row seat, uh, or rather you're on stage trying to <laughs> help shape this industry. So how has it been for you? I want to bring it back to you uh, personally, uh, having gotten into the space uh, back in 2017 after first getting intrigued and interested in what's happening in, in food and, and realizing there's much more you could be doing personally and there's a lot more that needs to happen for uh, our you know global consumption of, of meat, dairy and eggs to, and, and seafood to be cut down. How does it feel now for you What when you wake up every morning? What drives you? to do the work that you're doing? And could you have, you know, looking back, could you have imagined you'd be at this position talking uh, with so much authority and insight about this this whole new world of food? It's been the most incredible ride the last two and a half years. I, I, I do feel in some ways like I cheated a little bit. I know, I know some people in the industry, I think you're one of them, you know, have been who have been working uh, in this sector for, you know, over a decade or more. And I feel like I kind of came in right at the, you know, at the right time. <laughs> so, but, but, but I'll take it. I'm happy I did. Um, it's, it's been an incredible journey and I, I in some ways feel like I have earned a master's degree in alternative proteins, uh, just the amount that I've learned and, uh, it's been an honor to meet so many incredible people, um, and you know that includes my colleagues. I work with a real smart, uh, compassionate group of people, um, and that's that's part of what gets me up every day. Um, and also, I think the meetings. I mean, I, I travel a lot for my job, as do many of my other colleagues, and that can sometimes be kind of draining. Um, but I will say that you know I come home from these trips and I tell my husband like. As, as tired as I am, that was the most incredible meeting I've ever been into. And and he jokes because I, I say that like every time I come home now, like, no, that was the most incredible meeting. Um, I don't remember having that feeling when I was working in sales and working in advertising. Um, you know, I feel like what we're doing now is is truly changing the world and making the world a better place for animals. And uh, there's nothing I'd rather be doing right now. That's a great thing to say. What a great answer. I mean, I think <laughs> nothing more satisfying than that, right? To to be working hard, but at the same time be so driven and excited by it that uh, you can't help but wake up the next day and do it all over again. So, you know, I, I close out all my podcasts with this question. And, and if you've heard previous episodes, you probably have heard this one. But um, really, it, it all comes down to what kind of a food system are we creating for the future? Um, we're 7.5, 6 almost 7.6 billion people on the planet today. And you know this well, and I'm sure all the listeners know this by now, that we're going to be 10 billion by the year 2050. There's this absolutely no way we can feed the world if you look at, um, I mean, there's no way we can feed the world without also destroying it and destroying ourselves in the process if we don't bring about some sort of a change in our food system. So I want to know what your vision of success looks like um, looking far ahead into 2050 when, when GFI has been around for you know decades and we have a completely reinvented food system. What's that best case scenario in your mind that would make you feel you know 30 years from now in 2050 satisfied that you spent your time doing things that really mattered? 
Well, I think we we do joke about this at GFI, but I think there's an element of truth to it that the ultimate success story is that GFI doesn't need to exist anymore. So, you know, we're we're at the point, whether it's 10, 15, 20 years from now, where alternative proteins, be they from plants or whether it's cultivated meat, whether it's, you know, made in, in a lab uh, using fermentation or synthetic biology, no matter what it is, um, that the scales have tipped and that uh, animal agriculture, while it may not have disappeared completely, represents a very, very small percentage of all the meat that is eaten, you know, and that alternative proteins are now normalized. They're not called alternative. They're, they're just proteins made in a better way. Simple, but very, very impactful statement. But uh, Allison, I appreciate you taking the time today. This has been uh, packed with information. I am, I'm sure people are going to love this episode. So thank you, and thanks for all the work you're doing. I can't wait to see what, what 2020 brings. It's, uh, it's another new year, and it's going to probably be even bigger and better at GFI. So appreciate the work that you're doing, and uh, I'll, I'll be definitely having you back on the podcast to, to follow up and see where things are maybe a year or two down the line or even sooner. Thank you so much, Neil. It's been a, an honor and a pleasure. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Neil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.